day of the resurrection. We started off around uh, just before uh, Resurrection Sunday, commonly known as Easter. We started off about then, and and uh, like anything I do, it tends to get wordy. You know, it's just, it's not because it's me, it's because there's so much to say from the Scripture that uh, I think as, as we look at things, we need to compare Scripture with Scripture. We need to let Scripture interpret itself, so that's what we do. As we look at the verses, we look at parallel verses in the Gospels, and we find out a much bigger picture than if we just go simply through one. We have uh, seen the the resurrection itself. We saw that uh, the guards got bribed. We saw that two disciples didn't go to Galilee. They headed west. And the Lord caught up with them, Cleopas and Simon, the adventures of Cleopas and Simon. And they go back, and they weren't part of the the twelve, but they they had witnessed those events that morning because that was Resurrection Sunday. And the Lord caught up with them and said, what are you guys doing? And they said, are you so stupid you don't know what happened in Jerusalem? Can you imagine saying that to the Lord? But that's basically what they said. And so the Lord sat down and explained, and explained a few things to him, which uh, I really appreciated. And they got ready to eat and all that, and he just disappeared. And then he uh, shows up where the disciples have gone because they're scared. They're scared of the Jews. They're scared of the Romans. They're scared of everybody. They go into a room and lock themselves in. But locks don't bother Jesus, do they? My chains are gone. They just, you know, no big deal. He goes in, of course, Thomas didn't believe. He was the doubter of the group. I can almost see him when the Lord said, Feed all these people, Philip. And he said, What do you got? Five loaves and two fishes. I can see Thomas getting in the back of the line because he doesn't think they're going to have any left by the time he gets there. (laughs) So anyway, Thomas, we have seen, has been restored. The Lord shows up. Eight days later, after that initial confrontation, that's his second second appearance to the disciples. He shows up and restores Thomas. You know, hey Thomas, here I am. See the nail holes, see the side, see this? Okay, put your hands there. Don't be unbelieving, but be believing based on what you have seen. And now, it's, it's interesting because Just as I am without one plea, I come broken to be mended, wounded to be healed. That's Peter. That's today. John 21 is where I'd like you to open up to. John 21, 1. And Peter's a broken man. That's what he is. And so he is coming to the Lord, but he doesn't really realize what's in store for him yet. He comes broken to be wounded, to be, to be healed, to be mended, wounded to be healed. Mended is an interesting word because weren't they menders of nets? Yeah, looks like they finally got the nets ready to be really useful. So let's just take a minute, um, get our heads on right to be able to, to listen to God's word. Let's pray. Father, your word is so amazing. Many of us have been through it many times. And yet every time we open it up, it feeds us. And we thank you for that. It is further evidence of your divine hand at work through your written word. And Father, I pray that you will take this portion of your manna and you will use it to nourish our souls so that we indeed can grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. We ask this in his name. Amen. Well, now Peter, see, and, and I, I, we put a fishing trip question mark out there on the sign today, and we wonder if that gave anybody any ideas that maybe they should go to church, maybe they ought to go fishing today. Well, I'm glad to see you guys didn't. You can go later in the day, but you're, you're, you're not out on the lakes today. And so, but Peter is a fisherman. And Peter is impetuous. And we learn a lot of things about Peter. And we're going to learn some more this morning. Now in John 21.1, Jesus appears on at the Sea of Galilee. Now this is parallel to Matthew 28 verses 16 and 17. Now if I were to ask you where's the Great Commission found, I hope your response would be Matthew 28 verses 18 to 20. 
Okay? So these are verses just before the Great Commission where the Lord lays it out for his disciples. And it says, And after these things, and this is the events of chapter 20, the appearance to Thomas, etc., Jesus manifested himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. Now this is also known as the Sea of Galilee. Okay? He told his disciples after the resurrection, go on to Galilee and wait for me. Okay? Are those hard instructions to understand? Go wait. Okay. But a lot of us don't like to wait, do we? Now, <clears throat> Tiberias was the capital city of Galilee. It's about halfway up the western shore of the uh, Sea of Galilee. Probably the area where they, they all had met originally. Uh, and outside of this city were some mountains. So it says, and he manifested himself in this way. Now he's saying what follows is going to be an explanation of how Jesus manifested himself. Now Matthew 28:16 and 17, the comparable passage says, But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee to the mountain, which Jesus had designated. And when they saw him, and this is the word harao that's used. Harao is a word translated to see, but it means take a good long look at something. Blepo is a word that just means to glance at, okay? Which is what a lot of us do. We just glance at stuff. You know, women walk into a room and they harao it. They take a look at it. Men walk in and glance. They, men walk in and check for danger. If there's no danger, everything's cool. They could care less about the wallpaper and the furniture and everything else. That's normal men, normal men and women. So anyway, they got a good look at him. So here are these guys taking a good, good look at the Lord. Uh, he says, and having seen him, it's actually an heiress participle. Having seen him, they worshipped him. But some, out of the eleven, were doubtful. Okay. Now, the eleven went on to Galilee as instructed to a designated mountain. Okay? That's what we're told in Matthew 28:16. The mountain's not named, so it wouldn't become a shrine. And you think about it, if the mountain had been named, what would have happened? They'd have turned it into a shrine. And somebody made money off of it somewhere. So the Lord removed that temptation because by 70 A.D., everybody probably forgot what mountain it was. See? So he, he took that away, kind of like he took the body of Moses. Because what would have happened if he, if he hadn't buried the body of Moses? They'd have set up a shrine. They worshipped golden calves, after all. They worshipped the idols of the Canaanites. So why wouldn't they worship the body of Moses? So the Lord said, I'm removing this temptation from their midst. So the disciples had a mixture of worship and doubts. Sounds a lot like us, doesn't it? Mixture of worship. I come broken to be mended. Okay, a mixture of worship and doubts. What have you done for me lately? Well, the principle here is worship him with what you believe. They had a mixture of worship and they had a mixture of doubts. But what you know about him is enough to worship. So hopefully your worship will grow as your close knowledge, full knowledge, epinosis of Christ. As it grows, your worship will grow. Now what does worship look like? That's between you and God. That's one of those things that you know, some people raise their hands. I was raised in a church that if you raised your hand, didn't raise your hand to sing, you were you were considered unsaved and unworthy. And then I became part of a church that if you raised your hand to sing, you were, you were probably unsaved and unworthy. And all it is is legalism. Because he says, worship, he doesn't say how. Show me where he says how. He says, worship. Worship with a true heart, full heart. That's what we're called to do. Now in verse 2 of John 21, Simon Peter and Thomas, called Didymus, the twin, I want to know, did his twin get to heaven? Because all we know is that he was a twin, but we don't know if he got there or not. Did Tom, was Thomas able to evangelize him? 
and Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee. Now it points him out because there's some unfinished business with Nathaniel. And the sons of Zebedee, know who that is, James and John, sons of thunder, and two others of his disciples were together. So 11 of them set off for Galilee. Seven of them were there at this event. The other four were wandering around somewhere, I guess headed to Galilee. They just hadn't, hadn't got there. Now, Simon Peter had failed miserably. Had he not? The three denials of Christ after he said, I will, the rest of these guys, they probably will, but I am not. I will never deny you. And the Lord told him, you're going to deny me three times before tomorrow morning. That's what you're going to do. No, I won't. Yes, Peter, you will. Well, he did. And we know the last time that Jesus was leaving one of the trials and their eyes met and Peter wept bitterly. Okay? He was broken. He needed mending. So the Lord is going to use Peter in a great way, but Peter had to be fixed. So how's he going to do that? Thomas had already been restored. That doubter had already been restored. He says, see here, the hands, the side, you know, it's me. It's really me. Thomas is, is good to go. Nathaniel had been promised a special event. John chapter 1, verse 43 the next day he purposed to go to Galilee. He found Philip, and Jesus said to Philip, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida of the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Think about was was this an elitist, snobbish attitude? <laughs> Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? So if we if we cherry pick and look at the disciples and look at their strengths and their weaknesses, we find out that that Nathaniel was a bigot. Okay, that's who he that's he was he had a problem with that. And Philip said to him, "Come and see." That's a pretty good invitation. And Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and said to him, Behold an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit or no guile. Now he liked Nathanael because Nathanael said what was on his mind. Now, like a lot of us who say what's on their mind at times without thinking through it, maybe we need to grow up a little bit. Okay, Nathanael needed to grow up a little bit, but he came right out with it. And Jesus said, this is refreshing. This guy just just talked down to me, but at least he was honest about it. <laughs> okay? So the Lord's looking for good stuff to work with. Nathaniel said to him, how do you know me? And Jesus answered and said to him, before Philip called you, you are under the fig tree and I saw you. Hold it. Jesus knows everything about him. Already, And Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you're the son of God. <laughs> you're the king of Israel. Now, he was under there, and the Lord saw him, and, and right away Nathanael went, Okay, now I know who you are. And Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said to you that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? Sometimes it takes just a little for someone to believe. You will see greater things than these. Look at this promise. You will see greater things than these. What? And he said to him, Truly I say to you, you will see the heavens open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now, had Nathaniel seen that yet? No. But the Lord said that's what would happen. So here's the promise as yet unfulfilled in the life of Nathaniel. So he's got all these guys in Galilee, and, he, and is Nathaniel going to see that? Yeah, it's called the ascension into heaven. That's what's going to happen. He's going to see the Lord ascend. And so Nathaniel's going to get a special 
revelation. He got a special promise like several of them did. He got a special promise like, you know, John, you're going to be old. Peter, you're going to be old. Then you're going to die. You know, there's going to be certain things that he made promises to these guys. And I think it was once again to just reestablish and affirm in their lives who he was. And none of them denied him. There's no record of any of them denying him before they died. And that, that's amazing considering what they went through. Now, James and John were almost always around the action. Sons of Zebedee. I think that's interesting. It wasn't called James and John. But John doesn't refer to himself in that epistle other than the disciple whom Jesus loved. A lot of people look at that and go, well, John was evidently special in the eyes of the Lord. Well, he was. But I think after John's writings in the gospel and in the epistles, what did he write about in 1 John? God is love, right? The disciple whom Jesus loved I think is more a picture of how unworthy John was of love and his realization that the only way that he could have made him what he did was because of his love for him, the disciple whom Jesus loved. To me, is a very personal thing. Now, <clears throat> two other unnamed disciples were there as witnesses. He gives us five names. Okay, Anytime it, a few get picked out of the list, there's something special that, that he's got for them. Simon Peter said to them, look at Simon, always the leader. He says, I am going fishing. Now he didn't say, let us go fishing. (laughs) He didn't say, come on guys, let's all go fishing. Peter said, I am going fishing. And they said to him, we'll also come with you. I guess they were bored too. That's kind of an easy thing for some of us guys. Somebody says, let's go fishing. Okay. I know it's midnight, but we can be there by five. (laughs) You know, it's just the way we think. And they went out into the boat. And that night they caught nothing. Sound familiar? Impetuous and impatient Peter had trouble just waiting. There's a verse in Isaiah 40:31. In fact, it's inscribed on the back of my Bible cover. Those who wait upon the Lord. Wait is the word kawah in the Hebrew. It's the strongest word for faith that you can find. Okay, in the Hebrew. It's a very beautiful word. Those who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run, not be weary. They shall walk. And not faint. Peter wasn't applying it, was he? Now, looks like the rest of them did as well. They said, I'm tired of waiting. Let's go fish. Don't know what was running through their mind other than we need to kill some time till he shows up. Their catch was not blessed because they'd been given a new vocation that involve forgiveness of sins. That's the end of the last chapter. After these things, this is where 21 picks up. They've been given a new vocation. They're going to be fishers of men. Okay, They've been, they get something else to do. They're not supposed to be fishermen. So impatient activity, the principle, seldom brings blessings. The stuff we just do to fill in the blanks sometimes. Sometimes we need to stop, think, pray, spend more time with the Lord. Pray for his wisdom and his guidance. What then shall we do? Now, but it says, But when the day was breaking, Jesus stood on the beach. Okay, so they jump off in the boat. They get out there in the boat. Didn't catch anything. Yet the disciples did not know it was Jesus. So a new day is dawning. And with it, the opportunity to walk in the newness of life, the newness of the resurrection. And Jesus was where the disciples should have been, on the shore, waiting on him. Okay? They weren't there. He said, go on to Galilee and I'll catch up with you. He didn't say, go fish and I'll walk on the water to get to you again. Okay? Wasn't what he said. Now, impatient activity can actually take us far from the Lord. We spend time 
filling in the blanks and killing time instead of spending time with him. When we have downtime, maybe we should spend time in our Bible, spend spend time thinking about how how he does things, how he works, looking back at what he's done in our own life and in the lives of our, our loved ones. I mean, isn't that a lot more productive use of our time? In verse 5, so Jesus said to, him, to them, children, I love this. You know, you'd expect one of them to say, but we're grown men. John picked this up from Jesus because who does he talk to in 1 John? Children. Okay? And so he said, children, you do not have any fish, do you? Here is the, the, the raised Christ, resurrection body, hypostatic union, fully God, fully man, and he, his omniscience is coming right. You don't have any fish, do you? And they answered him, no. Now, although they are too far away to visibly recognize him, they're not too far away to hear his voice. There's just this guy standing on, on the shore. At least they respond to the stranger in a gentler fashion than they would have several years earlier. Who do you think you are, smart Alec? We've been fishing all night. We're dog tired. We haven't caught a thing. And you can see somebody getting really tacky with the Lord really fast. But they just respond with a simple no. And he said to them, Cast the net on the right-hand side of the boat. Aha, it's a little fishy here, isn't it? And you will find a catch. This is a promise. These guys have been fishing all night. They're experienced fishermen. They've been out there. They haven't caught anything. They've been casting their nets, bringing nothing in. And he said, just change the side of the boat. And they're out there thinking, Really? Changed the side of the boat, but they heard a similar thing like that three years earlier. It says, so they cast, and then they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of fish. Hmm. You know, I tried casting on the other side of the boat several times when I was out on the water. <laughs> but the Lord didn't make me any promises. <laughs> so so it didn't, didn't really come true. But have you ever been in a boat where there's two or three, four people... And a person on one side of the boat is catching fish on every cast. And you're on the other side of the boat and you're not catching anything. Not even getting a nibble. I think it's God's sense of humor just messing with us. Now this stranger offered a suggestion about where to fish. And again, they received the suggestion better than they would have earlier. Three years earlier. A lot better. They had received similar instructions three years earlier. In Luke chapter 5, in the first 11 verses, it happened while the crowd was pressing around him and listening to the word of God. He was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. He saw two boats lying at the edge of the lake and the fishermen had gotten out of them and were washing their nets. And he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and asked him to put away a little from the land. And he sat down and began teaching the people from the boat. Gave him a better better way to project, project his voice across the water. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep water and let your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we worked hard all night and caught nothing, but I will do as you say and let down the nets. Okay? They're just getting to know this new teacher a little bit. And he's a teacher, he's a rabbi, he's not a fisherman. It is out of his area of expertise, if you will. It is their area of expertise. So what has he done? He has is, he is given them instructions about how to do their job. Now, has that ever happened to you? Sometimes people that really don't know anything about what we do start offering us suggestions. Well, the Lord's gracious, a lot more gracious than, than we can be. When they had done this, they enclosed a great quantity of fish. And their nets began to break. 
So they signaled to their partners in the other boat for them to come and help. And they came and filled both of the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw that, he fell at Jesus' feet saying, Go away from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. (laughs) For amazement had seized him and all his companions because of the catch of fish which they'd taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Don't fear. From now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to the land, they left everything and they followed him. Now that's what had happened earlier on. But they weren't able to get all these fish in. Their nets weren't ready. They weren't prepared. Three years ago, they weren't able to handle the, handle the catch. So fishermen need to meet the conditions to receive the blessings. If we're supposed to go out and be fishers of men, we, we all know that you usually don't catch fish without bait. You usually don't catch fish without a hook. So you have to have the proper tools to go out and catch fish. And that becomes an art. More than a science, it becomes an art. You get the proper tools. I was uh, taught by a good friend when I was up in Pennsylvania earlier this year. I had only been fly fishing. I had attempted it once in high school. And fly fishing is an art form. It truly is. Nobody ever showed me how to do it. And so, you know, don't put weights on the flies. I mean, <laughs> all kinds of things that you don't, don't do. But he sat and showed me with great patience, this is how you do it. And you take this rod up to a 12 o'clock and flick your wrist. That's what you do. And you learn to work it. And you get the motion. And then you present the bait out there for the fish to take. So fishing becomes a lot of times more of an art than it does become a science. Of course, we like to cheat, fish finders and all these other other things like that. We're going to find a way to find a way to to cheat my uh, my grandpa. I know he wouldn't have minded me saying this now, but he used to call up the fish. Some of you know what that is. Some of you have a clueless what that is because they used to have these old crank telephones. And they take this telephone, put two wires on it, put a piece of copper wire, um, copper mesh down at the bottom of it, and throw it off into the place they're fishing, crank the phone. And it would shock the fish. They float to the top, gather them up nets. It's not remotely legal. <laughs> Never has been. <laughs> it's about like fishing with dynamite. So, I mean, <laughs> light it and throw it off in there. When they float to the top, you pick them up. But in any event, fishermen need to meet the conditions to receive the blessings. Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved, it's John again, said to Peter, it is the Lord. So when Simon Peter heard it was the Lord, he put his outer garment on, for he was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. Okay? So he catches all these fish, and the next thing you know, Peter jumps overboard. It doesn't indicate he tried to walk on water or anything else. He just jumped out of the boat. So he evidently remembered the previous event. He was far enough away they could hear his voice, but they couldn't, couldn't see him well enough. And Peter didn't realize who it was till John told him. And impetuous Peter put his clothes on, left the fish and the other disciples... And he swam ashore. But the other disciples came in the little boat, for they were not far from the land and about a hundred yards away, dragging the net full of fish. So at a hundred yards, you'd have thought that one of these seven would have at least recognized him by sight. He'd evidently changed his appearance to some degree. How? What? What did he do? Because it took a while for the guys on the road to Emmaus to recognize who he was. So now he's back in resurrection body. So he's changed his appearance to some degree. Now, you might think, well, what about all the whippings and scourgings and everything that he went through there on the cross? He still got the scars. Okay? Because he showed them to Thomas. But what about all the other stuff? 
Maybe they were looking for somebody so badly beaten that he was almost unrecognizable. But not anymore. Instead, they were given the opportunity to recognize him from a prior event. Instead of by sight, which if they'd have been standing on the shore, they might have recognized him by sight. But instead, they were in the boat. They are the ones who had drifted off course from grace. They are the ones who had drifted away. In verse 9, he says, So when they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire. If you ever, how many times have you read through this? And you go, well, that's pretty cool. It's a charcoal fire. It is an anthracia. is the word that is used. It's only used twice. Now, guess where the other place might be that there was an anthracia around? It's only used two times. We'll see it in a second. The charcoal fire already laid and fish placed on it and bread. How hard is it for the Lord to fish? You. Mo and Larry, come over here, jump out, jump out of the water into the frying pan. I mean, how easy it is, is it for him to do this? So he'd already made dinner for them. See? And it, he, was, he was ready to serve them breakfast. It's the breaking of a new day. He was getting ready to restore Peter, who just a few days ago stood in front of burning coals while denying him. He is taking him back to his denial. John 18, 18 says the slaves and the officers were standing there having made a charcoal fire. For it was cold, they were warming themselves. And Peter was also with them, standing and warming himself. What is Peter doing? Warming himself while the Lord has, has been betrayed, while the Lord is going through all these trials and everything else, and Peter's trying to blend in with the crowd. That was his third denial. That's when their eyes met. That's when Peter wept bitterly. So he was not just cooking the fish. He was burning the past. He brought it to Peter. His greatest failures... And he's burning the, the past. A few fish and bread were once used across this body of water to feed multitudes. On the other side of this lake, the feeding of the 5,000, they fed multitudes. So a few fish and some bread, and it's already there for breakfast. Jesus is the redeemer, the provider, and the sustainer. And he has just dramatically brought them this breakfast. Uh, served on a silver platter in a way to them. And Jesus said, bring some of the fish which you have now caught. Okay, so he's already got the fish going. He says, bring me some more fish out of what you caught. So he asked them to commingle the resources, which illustrates the great commission. It's not a great mission all by itself. And sometimes missionaries get off on a mission where they have a vision and everything else. And it's amazing how easy it is to leave the Lord out of it. I've heard them say, I have to protect my ministry. Whose ministry is it anyway? It's not mine. It's His. And He has permitted me the opportunity to share in His ministry. The commission, the great commission, is just what it is. We find out, Henry Blackaby said it a long time ago, find out where he is at work and join him. And if you do that, you know you are doing his will. Find out where he is at work and join him. It may be on a mission halfway around the world. It may be across the street. But you have a commission. And the... the the Lord is my co-pilot. No, the Lord's the pilot. See, he just lets us ride along on his mission. So notice that the credit for the fish should go to Jesus who caught them. 
and who provided for them via promise. He should get all the credit for all the fish that they're getting ready to eat. And he shares the catch. He shares the resources. Didn't he say, everything been given to me in heaven and on earth? Okay, so if you have resources to do something, use them. We oftentimes, overseas, we talk to the pastors. And it's easy. It's easy for anybody in ministry to say, if I only had. Okay, Satan loves that. He absolutely loves it. If I only had, because that's an excuse. That's, that's all it is, is an excuse. What did he say in 2 Peter 1? I've given you everything that you need for life and godliness. Everything. So he's telling us, take what you got and use it. And when we teach that and preach that to pastors all over the world, it's like they go, I see now. It's not, you know, how about the loaves and the fishes? We don't have enough to feed them. What do you have? Was the question. And that's the question we all should ask. What do you have? Use it. You have a talent, have an ability, have a spiritual gift. Use it. Because he's the one that brings about the catch. Brings about the blessings. So Jesus wants us to use what he gives us. He wants us to use what he gives us. Now, in verse 11, Simon Peter went up and drew the net to the land full of large fish, 153. It's interesting that they counted that was there. 153. I've seen, I know people have said 153 is going to be the number of end time nations when the Lord comes back. And I see 153 in this, and I don't see anything that corroborates that. Could it be true? Yeah, I hope it is. Are we close? Yeah. Do we have exactly 153? I've lost count. Because if you'll notice, some of them will split and divide and do all this other sort of stuff. Has it got anything to do with end time? I don't know. What it has to do with, there's a whole lot of fish. Okay? And these fish didn't break the nets this time. These fish didn't capsize the boat this time. They were able to handle the catch that they weren't able to handle before. So this is a report from a fisherman who was an eyewitness. John was an eyewitness and John was a fisherman. He says it's not a fish story. We know how fish get bigger and bigger as they're told over the years. This is not a fish story. Peter's adrenaline was pumping <coughs> because he was the deciding factor in getting this net that weighed several hundred pounds pulled to the shore. 150 fish, at a half, half a pound, or probably a pound is 150 pounds. It takes some ump to get it. And he was, he was the deciding factor. The significance, though, is that the net was not torn it was the first time it had broke from from the weight of the fish. So, <clears throat> things that once didn't work, bringing in this large catch three and a half years ago, will work when Jesus is behind them. Sometimes we wonder, why didn't this work? Why didn't this work? Was Jesus in the middle of it or not? We fail to ask that, that question. And the next point is disciples need to be spiritually prepared before they get a large catch. Sometimes evangelists go and they speak to thousands and they have thousands of converts and then what do they do with them? And uh, our man in uh, India, one of them, it's on the back wall back there, got a call from a major uh, evangelical group and uh, because we had foundations and we were teaching people and we were really making disciples. And they found out about it and they gave us a call over there and said, we have 7,000 people a week that uh, write us to get more instruction and more teaching. Can you help? They weren't prepared for the catch. 
We didn't. We weren't prepared for that. We hadn't initiated it. We weren't prepared for it either. And we're going. We're sorry. We don't have those kinds of resources. And if the Lord provides, yeah, we'll be sure to answer. We would. We would love to do that. But you don't go out and produce a lot of babies and leave them on doorsteps. And that's what happened in the 1800s. It happened all over Africa. And you have a lot of people that got saved in the 18, 1900s. They got, they got saved, and then they just left. They didn't have Bibles. They didn't have pastors. They didn't have anything else. And so was, was, I'm happy they're saved. I'm happy that they're going to be in heaven. I'm, I'm excited. But I think if they'd have followed the Scripture a little closer, they would have seen that they needed to make preparations for them and what were they going to do after that some of them as I've mentioned before were even told uh, no you don't need a Bible just pray to the Lord and the Holy Spirit will give you your message and you're going what? (laughs) it's been part of our job to get Bibles in the hands of people that don't have them and to train the pastors over there so they're better able to study and teach the word that's that's our calling, and we believe that's right out of go and make disciples. Disciples are students, not just converts. And so to try and teach them. Now, in 21.12, Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. And none of the disciples ventured to question him, (laughs) knowing, uh, questioning him, who are you, knowing that it was the Lord. So it does indicate Jesus had changed his appearance to some degree because it indicates they're still not quite sure. But he is known. They do know him. They've been around him for three and a half years and they, they, they're able to recognize voice. They're able to recognize Jesus. In verse 13, And Jesus came and took the bread and he gave it to them and the fish likewise. That sound like the upper room a little bit? Jesus still doing the serving and them not? Now notice that even in resurrection body, Jesus is still serving. We don't have a great high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses. He, like us, made like us in all things and yet without sin. He is seated on the throne serving. That's what he does. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for the many. And here he is, still serving. He offers them nourishment so they can carry out their assignment. They hadn't had anything to eat all night long, right? Well, he's got a job for them. Here it is. His form is a little different, but his function's the same. There's something they didn't quite recognize about him. But he is, they, they have recognized who he is. Now verse 21, verse 14, this is the third time Jesus was manifested to his disciples. So here it is recorded in the scripture. First time, Thomas wasn't there behind locked doors. Second time, Thomas was there behind locked doors. Third time, on the banks of the Sea of Galilee. After he was raised from the dead. Now the disciples had fallen asleep three times in Gethsemane. I always find it interesting when you start finding patterns. And here it is with three times they fell asleep. Mark 14. He came and he found them sleeping and he said to Peter. What did he ask him to do? Pray. This is the the night before the cross. He's getting ready to be betrayed. The Roman cohort is getting ready to come out. He says, okay, you guys, I want you to pray. And he came and he found them sleeping. And he said to to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for one hour? He's a little upset with him, I think you you can tell. Keep watching and praying that you might not come into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Peter, you said you would never deny me. You need to be praying if you want to remotely try and keep keep that statement. 
And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping. And their eyes were very heavy, and they didn't know what to answer him. And he came the third time, and he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Three times he woke them up. It's enough. The hour's come. Behold, the Son of Man's being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up. Let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. And we all know about the kiss from Judas. They all needed restoration. That's the point here, not just Peter. Peter is the one who denied him three times. Peter is the one whose denial was was carried on forevermore. And we stop and look. They all denied him. Every one of them. And that says that that's just like us. Somewhere along the line, we have done the same thing. We have denied the Lord. We didn't want to bring it out in the open. We didn't want people to know we were Christians. Somewhere along the line, we have denied the Lord. So all these guys, all these 11, needed restoration. And not just Peter. See, John was probably the closest to not denying him. But John is the one writing about all this, isn't he? And John knows what went on up here. Not just what went on when he was there at the cross. But what went on up here. And he knows that he too had denied the Lord. In verse 15, I don't know if your notes run out or not, but I got time I'm not going to waste. So, do they run out? All right, just follow along. I ran out up here too, so here we are. John twenty one fifteen. So when they'd finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? The word love here is agapao. It's a word that means it's an obedient type of love. It's a spiritual love. It's a love that does the right thing even when it's so easy to do the wrong thing. Doing what's right and best even when you don't feel like it. This is a tough word. It's a hard word to really define. It is better described. And it's used over a hundred times in the New Testament and it gives us descriptions of what love really is. And he said, do you love me? Because Peter would know there that it has to do with obedience. John 14, verse 15, 22, 23. If you agapao me, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And what is his commandments? Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you love me, you'll do that. So this love is about an obedience to fulfilling the two, two greatest commandments. So he asked me, And do you love me more than these? What happened in the upper room? One of you is going to betray me. Peter, when you look at it carefully, says, yeah, the rest of these probably will, but not me. So did you love me, Peter, more than these other guys? Do you have a love by comparison? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I phileo you. I love you. Phileo is a friendship love. It's a different type of love. It's a warm love. It's a warm that can involve emotions. And agape can too, but agape is primarily a a carrying out of, of a command for a specific reason. And here is, do you love me? He said, I, I love you as a friend. Peter didn't dare make the bold claim. That he agape loved him. And the Lord said to him. Tend my lambs. This is the Greek word bosco. And bosco is a word that means to feed. Feed my little sheep. Feed my lambs. Uh, What about something like. Don't keep the kids from coming to see me. The Lord said. And where does he start off with? In his restoration. Three denials. Three questions. 
He says, feed my lambs. So is Peter fully restored yet? He was in the process. The Lord had come to mend him. While Peter was being asked these questions directly, the others had to be asking themselves the same questions. Because he has singled Peter out in front of this group at breakfast, and he said, Peter, do you love me more than these? That's the question. The first question tests Peter's arrogance based on the more than these. Do you love me more than these? The love question means to do the right thing even when you don't feel like it. Uh, If he had done the right thing, he would not have denied him. Even though, you see, if he had done the right thing, even though he didn't feel like it, he was looking out for old number one. Did Peter fulfill the two greatest commands more than the other guys? That's basically what he's asking. Are they still going to argue over who's the greatest? We think back to them over the last six months, especially, of the Lord's ministry, and all they did was argue about who's the greatest. Who's the greatest? Who's the greatest? Who's the greatest? And the Lord caught them, and he called them out multiple times, including the week of the cross. He called them out. But are they still arguing over who's the greatest? They've all failed dramatically. Peter did not reference the others, but he answered for himself. I do love you. He could not bring himself to answer the agape question, though he told the Lord he loved him as a friend. So the Lord gave him as an assignment. How much faith do we need? A mustard seed? Lord takes what he's got and works with it. And right now, Peter is not the great apostle. He's far from it. The Lord gave him an assignment. He was called to nourish young believers. To feed and nourish young believers. Okay, He was called to be a pastor. From John chapter 10. Sheep. And Peter, I've got sheep that are not of this flock. And he says, and and I've got them in my hand. The Father's got them in his hand. There's no power in heaven on earth or under the earth can snatch them out of the Father's hand. Okay. Now, Peter, these sheep, okay, I want you to take care of the little ones. You are going to become a shepherd, a spiritual shepherd, and stop being a fisherman and a lousy one at that, I guess. (laughs) You're going to start being a shepherd. So his calling is very clear. Notice whose sheep they were. And that's something that sometimes pastors lose sight of. Because I've heard them say quite frequently, my sheep, my sheep, my sheep. They're all, every believer is the Lord's sheep. And if we are honored to be called as an under-shepherd, we have to remember whose sheep they are. They're not ours at all. We just associate with them. And God has put us in various places to try and lead. That's what he's called us to do. Now, <clears throat> and he said to him a second time. In verse 16. Simon, son of John. Do you agapao me once again? And he said to him, yes, Lord. You know that I phileo you. He dodged it again. And the Lord said to him, shepherd, poimeno, it's a word for pastor. You're going to be a shepherd. Shepherd my sheep, the little lambs that have grown up. You start by feeding them. When they grow up, you shepherd them. That's what you do. Shepherd, whose sheep? My sheep. Not yours, Peter. Not yours. The Lord's. And this time Jesus leaves out the comparison. Do you love me more than these? He left that part out altogether. He's asking Peter again, is he obedient? Are you obedient? And Peter at this time doesn't dare boast about anything. What would you do? You just made a big failure like this and 
and maybe you didn't know the whole world was going to know about it. <clears throat> All your failures got put in print translated into 2,000 languages and it's spread out all over the world and everybody for the next 2,000 years is going to know what a monkey you were out there while you were, <coughs> while you were denying, denying the Lord. He continues the assignment to shepherd his sheep. Now Jesus is the shepherd of Israel. Matthew chapter 2 verse 6 a quotation you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler <coughs> who will shepherd my people Israel. Jesus Christ is the chief shepherd. It took Peter a while to get that, but he has made some to be overseers. And in Acts 20:28, 20, he talks about an overseer and a shepherd. And it's interesting because throughout the history of the church, people have actually died over church offices, over the issue of church offices. Some believe it's an overseer or bishop form of government. Some believe it is a pastor, pastor-teacher form of government. Some believe it's an elder form of government. You know what it is? All of the above. Acts 20:28. Be on guard for yourselves and all of the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, bishops. This is the Ephesian elders he's talking to, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. The Ephesian elders, overseers, their job is to shepherd. Now, the objective, I believe, is to figure out what works best in your area and design a structure that is, that is accountable, and design a structure that is functional. Because we've we've been all over the world with this and say, well, should we have elders? Should we have deacons? Should we have pastors? Should we have... And the answer is, what works best for you? Because there are many described forms of government in the New Testament, but not prescribed forms of government. We have been set free in order to do that. Make something that works, and if the form no longer works, don't worship the form, but get rid of it and change it. Just makes sense. Peter learned this lesson. 1 Peter chapter 5, <clears throat> verses 1 to 5. <clears throat> Therefore, he writes, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder. See, he's not the, he's not the high muckety-muck anymore, is he? Who's the greatest among you? He says, I exhort you as your fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that's going to be revealed to shepherd the flock of God among you. Pastor. Okay? He's talking to the elders. He said, your job is to be a shepherd. The flock of God among you, wherever you find yourself, whatever God's assigned you. Exercising oversight, not under compulsion. You didn't become a pastor just because somebody pushed you into it. That's a, that's a mistake. But voluntarily, according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. You don't become a pastor to get rich. And most pastors I know certainly did anything but get rich. You know, they, they took jobs whenever they wouldn't get, weren't guaranteed any pay. Nor yet is lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. Shepherds are supposed to lead sheep, not drive them. They drive sheep to the slaughterhouse. But they're supposed to lead them. And when the chief shepherd appears, see, Peter got this right. It took a while. When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. There's a crown for pastors who do <coughs> their assignments in a humble way, as the Lord has called them. You younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders, and all of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud. How hard was that for Peter to write? 
Did he learn anything? He's writing this about 30 years after the resurrection. Yeah, he did. He understood about pride. God <clears throat> is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he might exalt you at the proper time. Cast all your cares on him, because it matters to him about you. That's what Peter wrote. He was a man who had been changed. He was a man who admitted his mistakes. He was a man who was still on a growth curve. And it still took him a while. Compare his argument with Peter in Galatians 2. With Paul in Galatians 2. It still took him a while. But he didn't quit. Now that's encouragement for all of us. Our job, job is to be humble before our Lord and be used where he wants us and be willing to, to go there. Simple, Simply put, not quite so easy to live, but that's what we're called to do. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, again for your amazing grace, your matchless love. Our chains are indeed gone. You have set us free. And, Father, we are so thankful that you came to fix our brokenness. And Father, may we be willing for that to happen. Let us be humble enough for you to form and fashion us in accordance with the image that you would have us be, which is our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that you'll be with us throughout this coming week. Nourish us spiritually. Grant us opportunities. And grant us courage to be able to seize those opportunities for your glory. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.